Thus far we have looked at verses 1 and 2 where we saw the direct address of God to the people giving the defined actions and requiring the dutiful acknowledgement in their life, not just their mouth. Then we saw this great prohibition where he gives the introduction of his covenant to the covenant people. And I, exp- I have put as a guide for you on the back of the bulletin that it, on covenantal theology that you may understand uh, and recall what we shared last week very briefly in that. And that is for your edification later. And having said that, below that are some helpful websites that are non-political that you may look at on the perspective on the Roe versus Way decision. Exactly what came down with Roe and, and Dawson and also how we are to respond. It's not, they are not political. They are, well, they're, it's truth <laughs> and it's theological and edifying. We begin in verse 4, which is the second commandment. It is one of the longest of the commandments. And there is much to be said about it, but I'm going to try to just bring out three cookies. I grew up, Mama would let me have three scoops of ice cream. I could have three scoops of, or three, three cookies of Oreos or Nutter Butters or whatever, but I was never allowed to have three pieces of pie or three this or that. I'd have to eat three pieces of broccoli or something, so I'm going to try to just give you three cookies this morning, but they are going to be high calorie so that you understand that. He says here in verse 4, speaking to the covenant people, not as a group, each individually, he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above the earth or beneath the earth or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible, and sufficient word. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that the Spirit... And by the Spirit, you would give us eyes to see your truth, your word, your instruction for our lives. I ask, Father, you give us ears to hear and grace to live out what we hear. This we ask in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is a relevant issue before us today on idols. And this is not going to be just an interesting history lesson. It is timely because idolatry, and idolatry is the challenge of true religion in every age. It is the great challenge, not atheism. Atheism doesn't hold a candle to idolatry. Atheism, in fact, is a passing fad. We know this to be a fact because April Fool's has been named the national holiday for atheists. April Fool's. You don't get it. They don't believe in God. April Fool's. Don't you get it? Okay. You don't get it. You are being way too serious, so I will become way too serious. We will now stay till 1230. Wasn't that a funny joke? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Very good. I hear, I hear that. Y- y- y'all don't don't. Larry's having a heart attack. Don't 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 mess with him. Atheism is a passing fad. Atheists have always made up a tiny memori- a minority and aren't really atheists anyway. All you have to do to be an atheist is to deny God and hate Him. You have to hate Him to be an atheist. You cannot hate something you don't believe. That's it's foolish. But the defining mark of an atheist, a true atheist, is he hates God. It's a dying fad. And so this is an important command to us because it maintains the thrust of the first commandment. 
in that since the Lord is He who He is, and since the Lord has done what He has done, He will not share His worship. He will not share His praise. He will not share His service. He will not share His glory with another. He is exclusive. He alone deserves the glory and the honor and the exaltation. And He's calling us in the second commandment to utter loyalty to Him, to worship Him in all of our life with complete and utter devotion. And that is what we are studying both last week and further fulfilling this week. For you will notice in the first commandment, in verse 3, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. Well, the first commandment deals with the whom. It deals with the whom we worship. It deals with the object of worship. But this commandment, this second commandment, deals with the how we worship. The right way of worshiping the, the one true exclusive God. Both of them address the subject of worship. So let's see from this text what we can learn then about worship. About worship. What are we talking about when we mention worship? Well, I can tell you three things right here. Number one is our responsibility to worship or in worship. Our responsibility. Notice he says here, You shall not make any idols for yourselves or any likeness in heaven or above the earth or or beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So, well, Pastor, why aren't you starting with idolatry? Because it's about worship. I will get to the idolatry. God's self-disclosure, God's self-disclosure and self-revelation is to completely dominate our concept of Him. It does not come from understanding. It does not come from our own nature. It does not come from any human source. It comes from the Word of God alone. Period. No other place. What is so sad today, and I'm already moving too fast, is one form of idolatry is where you worship the worship where you worship the preacher, where you worship the Word, where you worship anything but the thing that is to be worshipped, and that is God, and God alone. And so what you see in this passage is, first of all, it sounds like that maybe God is saying here, Israel, my covenant people, You may not make any images of anything. You cannot draw mountainscapes, landscapes. You cannot draw birds. You can't draw uh, pictures of fruits and vegetables on a table. You can't draw this or that. It sounds like you can't draw anything. You can't paint anything. You can't do woodcuts. You can't do any sort of media. You can't engage in art, and that's not what is commanded here. What he is talking about here is this is that you may not have anything in worship that is given as an image to Him. No image of God. See, we think that we look at this passage, we're talking about having some kind of idol like Jesus on a cross, a crucifix, or like Mary, or like an engraven stone, or like a saint on the top of a famous building, or Jesus in stained glass windows, or things like that. That is forbidden in the second commandment. That is not to be done. There's not to be any, any image, but I'm just follow along with the logic. It talks about our responsibility. You know, but to say that God doesn't want to have images or God doesn't want to have things, when you, one of the sermons I've never preached in Cook County, and I probably would do it different, is it's a titled uh, Remember the Lily Work. And in the temple, when they built the magnificent temple, there was all of this lily work that was to be painted where no one would ever see it. And God said, Take great care. And He gave a command Remember the lily work. No one would see the lily work in the top of the temple, it was unseen. And it was carved. He did do that. 
They are going to do all sorts of other designs. In fact, the mercy seat has the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Symbolizes His covenant presence with the people. However, it is commanded that God is not to be pictured. He is not to be pictured for worship. He is not to be visually represented. represented. And it is clear, of course, from the context and clear from other passages. For example, just write down out here Deuteronomy 4 and the parallel passages says, So watch yourself carefully since you did not see any form of the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure. God is not ever to be represented in an image. It is absolutely forbidden. And this is a New Testament command. There is no amount of grace to cancel it. He says, I will not be worshipped by the imagination or the machinations of man. I am who I am. There's no way to draw God and draw His glory. There's no way to draw... And, and by the way, the children are learning this in their catechism. What is God? God is a spirit and hath not a body like man. You can't draw a spirit. When the movie The Shack came out in the book, it would be very fair to say to you that's an abomination because that was intentionally done to make God approachable. God cannot be approached except on His terms. You see, you didn't see God at Mount Sinai where the, where the commandments were given. They heard Him. It was a direct address. He spoke to them. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. He spoke. They heard. What did they hear? The Word. It wasn't with sight. It was with the ears. They heard. And so don't make images of Him. And this is the command. Because... This second commandment is also a commandment not only to abstain from making a picture or an image of God graven, drawn, or however you want to do it, but also the visualization to represent a false God because any image we would make of God would be false. And it also applies to anything that is a false idol, a false God. And so that too, that point was made very clear at Exodus in chapter 32 because you remember Moses is up there on the mountain receiving the commandments. Aaron's down there. They've been delivered from Egypt. He's down there. They don't know if Moses is coming back or if he went to go another way. So what did he do? He did what all the nations around them do. They had idols and so he made the golden calf. And they said, this is the God of Israel. It's Exodus 32, 1 through 4. We saw, we see what God did when that happened. That was a very violent moment when that took place. And so the, the first three or four times you read through it about the golden calf and the image of a foreign God being introduced into the worship of Israel, but if you look clearly, you'll see that Aaron, though, made that golden calf as an, of what he viewed as the image of God, Yahweh. And so the children of Israel, the God of Israel had gotten you this far. You're abandoned now. Moses is on the mountain. He's gone somewhere else and we don't know where he is. And so we're switching another brand. We're changing our denomination and we're going after another God now. And now the golden calf was the image of God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not the pillar of fire, not the cloud of smoke, not the one who depart, who split the Red Sea. None of that. No, it's this golden calf. And Aaron was not attempting to hijack the religion and take it away from the people and take them into another form of religion. All he was trying to do was attempting to visualize God. Now let me tell you something. Those of you on Wednesday nights know this. As we have studied 1 John and the discussion that it is, it is to the believer and about assurance of salvation and he talks about the Antichrist before the Antichrist comes we see that in John that it is the leaders 
the religious leaders in the churches that twist, that can twist the truth, that send the church into the abyss. Here you have the man who is the leader, and what is he doing? This is not the lay people. This is the leader. What has he done? He has done something that is going to cost one-third of the people their lives and nearly wipe them out. This didn't come from an outside force. This came from inside. The greatest threat to the church today is from the inside, not the outside. When the Antichrist is revealed, that one, the one that is the Antichrist, he will seek to destroy the church from the outside. But the Antichrists are working very well in the churches today. And that's why, and you will always find them in churches where the pulpits do not preach unapologetically the message and the Word of God chapter and verse. You'll always find them. They'll raise their head. And so what takes place here, you have this idea that you might be even saying this right now in your own mind. You'd say, well, we can think of our God however we want to think about God. I can do that. It says I, the things in the Bible, well, I don't really like the things that are in the Bible. It says about God, He kills women and children. I don't like those things. I can't picture any of that. I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. Uh, the worst one I've heard is when people tell me if God is a God of sovereign election, I can't worship that God. And I can't say to them, well, you're going to be smoking in eternity. I wouldn't ever put a condition on I can't worship God. I want to absolutely worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what we are told to do in Scripture. And right here it is introduced in the second commandment. And what we do is this. You say, well, then what do you mean by all these idols? The people that fall susceptible to the idols are not the people out there that make totem poles and make things like that. It's people in the church who decide they do not want the God they have. They want the God that is. They want to make God what they want. And that's idolatry. This is not a teaching to the lost world. This is a teaching to the covenant people. And what did Israel do all the way until the time of Malachi? What did they do? They always made idols. So people today, they worship a Jesus that I don't know who He is. He may be the Jesus of the Jesus Seminar. He may be the Jesus that's this. I, ha I have a friend and, and, and known people that go to a, the, the most uh, liberal Baptist church in Texas is in Garland. And it, it prides itself as being historically Baptist and completely open to the LGBTQRTS. I don't know what it is. If you feel called to be a pastor and you're a lesbian in transition to being a dolphin, you're welcome there. I read their doctrinal statement. There is none. Except that we take a vote on everything. I said, it's a Baptist church. We vote about everything. We've got a committee for everything. It's Baptist Church. No doctrinal statement. No position on the Bible. Nothing like that. But if you're gay, come on. I would tell you if you're gay, come on to the journey. We're going to tell you the truth because you don't have a chance of changing without the gospel of Jesus. You're not going to be changed by going to church. You'll be changed by being with the church that worships God in spirit and truth and the one true God. That the, new, the revelation calls it the remnant. And so here's what happens. We have people walking about that says, no, I don't, uh, I don't think I want to be that way. And, you know, pastor, you preach like that. No one's ever going to come to church. Um, I'm the most amazed that people still come here. This world does not want to stand up to truth, and I don't know all the truth. But I will tell you this, by God demanding that He is not to be pictured and that He is not to be visually represented requires that you solely then conceive of Him only one way, and it's by the Word. That's the beauty of the commandment. Well, I don't understand the Bible. That's what the Bible says about people that are lost. 
The Bible specifically says those who cannot discern the Scriptures are spiritually dead because the Scriptures are to be spiritually discerned by the spiritually reborn. And so consequently it's important for you know, the liberals who want to go out with scissors and cut and paste and take the things out that they don't like in the Word of God. Well, we've moved past that long ago. There are, there are, there are, there are idolaters and it's important because some of you will come to experience this and realize it was part of your childhood and it's been part of your adulthood. Maybe you had a bad father, and let's face it, fathers are the first ones to teach us about God, and perhaps you have decided you can't love God the way that He is because you had a bad and abusive father. This is true. This is true. Let me give you a little quip as an illustration. In a book entitled The Psychology of Atheism, Paul Vitz writes, he he studied... 100 of the most important atheists and agnostics and radical skeptical believers over the last 125 years. So that would have been Bertrand Russell and all of those types. And you know what the results are? His conclusions are this. All 100 of these great atheists that he studied and he writes in his book, all 100 of them had bad, abusive fathers. You see, I have a hard time conceiving of God as a father because... He says, I had a bad father. Do you know what that is? You say, well, that's psychology. No, that's making God an idol. Innocently as it is, it's making Him an idol. And it wins over what we think. And God says that you will not worship me according to what you think. You will worship me and conceive of me, conceptualize me according to what I have written. You don't have, listen, the perspicuity of Scripture says that Scripture is enough for you to know God as who He is. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. You don't need to know Greek, Latin, uh, Aramaic. You don't need to know French, Pig Latin, or anything. The perspicuity of Scripture is so relevant, you can read it that a person who has never read it can pick it up and know the God who is Jehovah. And people say it's too complicated. It's not complicated. And so when God told Moses, I am that I am, what a liberating thought. What a liberating truth. And the one thing I still admire about Stonewall Jackson is if you ever read anything about Stonewall Jackson's upbringing, he was a horrendous example uh, of men in his life. And, and And at about the age of 10, he looked around at these men who were real, real gutter material and he said this I don't want to be like this I want to be different and where did he get that from he got it from the word he got he got it from the word he got it from God's word God is saying here don't think about me in your preconceived categories don't come here trying to represent me in accordance with your imagination I define myself by my word so that's the application it's very simple simple class, God has said right here, our responsibility is simply this, to define God by God's Word. Does anyone not understand? I didn't think so. That's the first thing He is saying. I define me. Any definition you give of me that is not of my definition is idolatry. Period. So what has He done? He has shown us in the second commandment, the first, second commandment, the first verse, our responsibility. God divines Himself by His Word. There's nothing else. That's why I taught you two weeks ago the difference between prima scriptura and sola scriptura. Prima scriptura says, I will put Scripture hierarchy in a, at the top of my hierarchy and everything else to the side, below it. Sola Scriptura, which is what we preach, uh, the Word of God alone says there's nothing else. If God says it, it's settled. Number two, we have our responsibility to worship God 
Number two, we have our regulation in worship to God. Our regulation. That is, He teaches us how we're to worship Him. It teaches us how to worship God. Look with me at verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them. What is He talking about? He introduces worship and the them is referring to the idols. Let me just give you real quick nine things, real quick, you can write down on why idolatry is so easy. Let me just tell you, I'm not going to give you all the verses of this. I don't have time. I'd like to do this in about three minutes. But I want to tell you, there are about nine different revelations in Scripture as to why people love idols, love to worship idols, make God an idol, and get together with people that are idols, worshipers with them. So here's the first one. Uh, The attraction to idols is, number one, guaranteed. Uh, If somebody has spoken over a statue to cause the essence of, uh, so to speak, a god to enter it or something they believe divine, that statue is now to be functioning as a conduit for anything done in the presence of the worshiper towards the god they're referring to or worshiping. This happens in in modern-day Christianity today with uh, various types of of, uh, manifestations that if you don't do this or that, you don't have the conduit this way. I just saw a thing yesterday where uh, Kenneth Copeland said, I have come to the place I'm going to give more until God owes me. And to listen to the phones ring and to listen to the people crowd in and to buy that because they all want it's guaranteed. It's just like if you get a lantern and you rub it three times, a genie will pop out. Right? No. Number two, it's selfish. But it can be totally your thing. Now, well, James, you, you do what you want to do. You just don't tell me how I do my thing. Well, I'll tell you something. It doesn't work like that. Not in God's economy. It may work in your American concept of freedom, but it wouldn't work like that in God's economy. He says, how will they hear unless there's a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, not by doing your own thing. So it's selfish, and accordingly it was felt that if one had fed a given God, if you went and fed a God, that God was in turn obligated to use the power on behalf of the feeder that you worshipped. That's the basis on how you get someone to buy you an $80 million jet to take the gospel across the world because all other airplanes are, fill, are platinum tubes filled with demons. Number three, it's easy. Idol worship's easy. I mean, you don't have to come up here and do idol worship. Idol worship is easy. Generosity of worship, that is offering sacrifices were the sole significant requirement of faithful idolatrous religions. And so here's what this means. Idolatry minimalizes ethical behavior. So here's what happens. A person can be an absolute closet homosexual living their life in rebellion to God and say they prayed to receive the sinner's prayer, never walk into church the rest of their life and there are plenty of people who love that person and say he's saved and I will tell you he is condemned. And the one who says he's saved probably doesn't even know what it means. Because they say the right thing, they do the right thing. I go to church, I'm saved. I haven't broken the Ten Commandments. Well, you're a liar for sure. I you broke one of them. And uh, I haven't done these things. The reality of it is, is it's just absolutely easy. You know, do the idolatry thing. Go to, you know, when I was growing up, we were Christian ends. We went to church at Christmas and Easter. That's it. Until we went to West Texas and when we, my family was saved, everything changed in us. I do not, that's why I cannot accept somebody that says they're a believer and will not go to worship because not to go to worship says you hate God's people. Number, and a lot of other things. Number four, it's convenient. 
Idol shrines allow the worshiper to take the sacrifice to the god or goddess of their choice virtually any time of day or the week, especially on Sunday morning. The lake's kind of calm. We'll go out here, we'll get online, we'll watch so-and-so, and then we'll go out and water ski instead of being with the people of God. And so they, can do, they don't have to go to a location. They don't have to burn any gas. They don't have to do anything. They can just do it on their own. It's convenient. Number five, it's normal. This is what we see most rampant today. Idolatry is normal. If an Israelite asked a Canaanite neighbor, for example, how do you farm around here? The Canaanite neighbor back then would have said, well, you start with uh, making a proper offering to Baal and to Asherah in advance of preparing the field. This is what you do, and then after that, this will ensure the fertility of the farm, or that your cantaloupes are going to be extra sweet, or your tomatoes extra big, or that your spring onions will be 10 feet tall and 8 feet wide. It made sense. That's what they do. People do the same thing today. Number six, it's logical. It's very logical. It's, it, the ancients believed in the multiplicity of gods, everyone being a specialist at some aspect of the world or of nature. Therefore, in the ancients, they found it enormously attractive to think they could gain assurance of access to the gods through their idols. Right in the hotel that I used to stay in when I went to in, uh, India the first two or three years, just up the street was the Indian god to sleep. And people would go out there and they would give money to that person, to the priest that was there that was usually asleep. You'd wake him up. And then you would give money, he would burn incense, and then you would be blessed to have a good night's sleep. The funny thing is, he was most busy in the middle of the night. Number seven, idolatry is pleasing to the senses. Idolatry is very easy for those who don't want to rock the boat. For those who just want to maintain a decorum, to those who just, you know, believe everything, and you'll, you, if, you, if, you don't believe any, if you don't believe anything, you'll fall for everything. Idolatry provides worshipers with an image of, of, of divinity pleasing to the eye, spawned a whole entrenched image that you see, industry you see in Acts 19 of those who made the idols. And it appealed to the sensual, even broadly speaking, to the artisticness of people. Number eight, it's indulgent. It's indulgent. It, this is where we get the concept of gluttony. This is the very reason gluttony is prohibited in the Bible. It's because of idolatry. I'll show you why. Pagan practices with idols were normally done when they were allowed to eat meat. Now the Israelites could eat meat any time. But the pagan idol worshippers could only meet, eat meat at special occasions because the meat would be offered to idols. And consequently when that happened, they believed that the more meat that you ate in relation to the idol that you were worshipping, the term in the ancient languages, pigging out, was born. And pigging out was typified by pagan sacrifices in contrast to the more cleanly, clear, clearly symbolic value of Orthodox Israeli worship. This is also the reason why the Bible prohibits drunkenness. To be a glutton and a drunkard in the days that these prohibitions were made was because... They were indications one did not worship Yahweh. Were instead idol worshipers. It's indulgent. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the Bible. Ancient pagan worshipers taught that if they took the role of like Baal and have sex with a temple prostitute, which you see Paul talking about at Corinth, portraying, let's say, Asherah, the Greek god, Des. That act would cause the deities, Baal and Asherah, to send from heaven great fertility upon your crops and your children and your bank account. It's indulgent. 
and I guess I was to give you a ninth one, that was it, erotic. You say, well, James, we don't do any of that stuff. Oh, but we do. Idol worship has another name, pornography. Not just gluttony, not just drunkardness, not just false worship. So there's a, he gives this regulation in worship. Look with me at here in, in Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 18. Just listen. Remember, you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you. Be careful not to act corruptly and make an image of Him. The point is, is that you didn't see God, and so don't make a false one. That's the point. So write that down. Our regulation in worship, you have not seen God, so don't make one. Don't make a false one. We look around this room, all of us would say, well, I haven't worshipped an idol this week. I haven't worshipped an image this week. I kind of got one down. We can, you know, I, I kind of got this one down, Pastor. Let's, let's move on to the next point. I didn't, I didn't worship an idol this week. Well, the great challenge in the area of worshipping God is loyal today is as mental is as mental as it is volitional. I I guess I'm just going to be a pastor. You know, I get to be a pastor in the time where we have air conditioning and electricity. But I'm also a pastor in times where people don't think they need to use their mind. So we got electricity in the wall but nothing between the ears. You are not you are way more smart than you give yourself credit for. All of us are. God made the mind. He doesn't tell us to renew our hearts. He says renew our minds. Over and over, there are churches today that are filled with visual images that challenge what we know of God. But our great challenge here for us in this day is the image of God that we have made on our own accord, separate from His Word, and we have imposed upon the one true God. We have all done this. We are all guilty. That was the prayer of confession. There is a tendency today to seek and serve the God we want instead of the God who is. And you see there are two ways to commit idolatry. You can worship something other than the one true God. That's one way. You can worship something other than the one true God. That's one way. And there's another one. You can worship the one true God by some other means than those that He has appointed. This gets every one of us. You can worship God, but not in the way He has appointed. That's why we changed back around April. What we started doing in April with the bulletin and this service, the way we do our service, it's not because we have changed what we believe or anything like that. I have, since I was a, began being a pastor in June of 2000, I have been working to get to where we came on the 17th of April, 2022. 22 years to have what is known as God's regulative principle of worship. That's what we do. And it's since that time that we've been filling the seats up. But everything in the worship points to God and points to the message, points to His worship. It's not dry, it's not dead, but it was one of the reasons it was significant to get the hymn books. You can't sing hymns without the hymn book. And we're not going to splash the words on the wall anymore, not while I'm alive. Not while I'm alive. And so everything points to this. What is the regulative principle of Scripture? It's ordered by God. You can see a picture of it in Isaiah chapter 6. It's right there. But it boils down to this. You sing the Word, you pray the Word, you believe the Word, you read the Word, and you pray it. There's nothing that we add, and we don't want to take away anything He has said. No church has got this perfectly, but it is, it is a reformation, literally, to worship God in spirit and truth. 
Not everybody in this town knows there are plenty of firecracker stand churches in town, and I'm going to tell you a little secret. I know a lot of people that have gone to those places, but they've gone to the one before, and then they've gone after there, and they come out looking all the same, upset, thin, and skinny. And they're looking for more. And when they've left us, they want to come back and say, can I save face and come back? I said, you never lost face. Come back. Come home. So let me just show you something. The second commandment is the source of what our regulative principle of worship is based on. It is to do worship only of God by what He has commanded. You say, well, I don't believe that what you're doing is right. Then bring the Bible to me and bring the book and the chapter and the verse and let us be Bereans and let us study and see what God has said. Because this is where you fly in the face of tradition. It's one of the reasons I went back to wearing a coat and tie on Sunday. I mean, it's just one of the reasons. And it's been great because I'm losing weight. I'm sweating to death. Take too long. So ladies and gentlemen, let me just close this point with this. Because worship creates a culture. Worship creates a culture. Because worship creates God's people. And how you, how you worship determines what you become. You must only worship God the way He has told you to worship Him. And He has said to worship Him according to His Word. Period. Last of all, last of all, and quickly, worship or our reflection in worship. Our reflection in worship. Our reflection in worship comes from our knowledge of the Word. You can have two people sitting in a service and one will say, I didn't understand the sermon. And somebody sitting said, that's the best thing I ever heard in my life. You have somebody sitting there that, that, hear, that, that all they do is they feel how cold it is in the room and the other person says, I'm not cold, I've got the willies. God's move, God is, a, it, it, it doesn't, and it, you can't ask, I mean, one of the things we know about the Word, we, we have to, the preacher has to be faithful to the Word, but it's only God that move, hits your head and your heart and your hands with it. I can't take responsibility for keeping you awake. The Bible even has a story about that, about a guy that slipped, fell out the window, and he died and he was raised from the dead. In verse 5 and 6, learn, learn this, the third thing. You shall not worship me. You shall not worship them or serve them. Here it is. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing love and kindness to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Just very quickly, our, re our reflection of worship in worship is completely based upon our knowledge of the Word of God. God's people are to refrain, listen, God's people are to refrain from thinking about Him in terms of these visual representations and worshiping Him, imagining because that He is something that they have made up. In this, it is important, and in this manner here of our worship, our worship must be pure, because this commandment calls for purity in the sense that God is warning. In the passage, God tells you of His... There's three things. He speaks of His nature, He speaks of a warning, and He speaks of a promise. The first one is held here. I am a jealous God. I don't like to think of God that way. Well, you know, let him with ears have ears. Here, I, I'm sorry. That's what he has disclosed about himself. Well, we're not supposed to be jealous. Well, I'm going to tell you what. If some man comes up to Kelly at Tom Thumb and goes up to her and just plants a big old kiss right there on her lips or anywhere else for that matter, I'm going to show you a jealous husband. If somebody takes my wife out in the car and has, her way, has his way with her that defiles our marriage bed, 
I'm going to show you a whole lot more than a jealous husband. That is exactly the illustration that God is using. He is not talking about a peck on the cheek. He is talking about infidelity. If you rape me, my word, I am a jealous God. And you will pay. Not only will you pay, your children will pay, your grandchildren will pay, and your great-grandchildren will pay. Well, let me give you some hope here. That is not addressed to His covenant people. Because God's covenant people do not hate Him. To hate God in this passage, in this context, means to disobey or not obey. To love Him means to obey Him. The children of God for whom the covenant people, the covenant people, God's people, the you in this passage, they are the ones that love Him. But the ones that hate Him, He is going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And what He means by that is simply this. How I teach my children is going to affect how they walk in blessing or cursing before God and how they raise their children. The apple will not far, fall far from the tree. One of the things that I have enjoyed so much as a dad, and I thank you specifically here in Cook County as I've labored with you these 11 years, as you've had a wonderful part in the upbringing of my children. And my children are preacher's kids and they love the church. Absolutely love it and serve it. And we have jokes as to why that, but that's not appropriate at the moment. But we raised them this way. My children got to do things some of you didn't let your children do, but one thing is for sure, my kids love the Lord. Just ask them after church. And they can tell you things too, chapter and verse. They've learned the Word and are learning it. God is jealous. Well, does that mean that God has emotion? No. What it means is God is saying, I'm like a husband who has been wronged, and I'm going to take it out on you if you violate this commandment and I'm going to take it out on your kids and all he means by this it's not that it's capricious it's like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree if you're not going to live by my commandments do not expect your children to either I have ministered to too many men that are dying that say to me they wish they had done different with their children and it's too late for them but it's not too late for the Lord Amen you think about how serious that is, I'll just give you a reference. Just go to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1-3. You can see how serious God is about this. But then he, he does something else. He goes on to say, speaking about, about this concept of, of his... Uh, this, we got His nature, He's holy and jealous... We've got this, this idea of what he's going to do. You know, he's going he's to give them a warning. You do these things. I will visit the iniquities. And then notice how he ends with a promise. The very ending. We end on a good note. But showing loving kindness to those who love me and keep my commandments. Watch this. He gives a word of promise... And it is a word of compassion, a word of mercy, and a word of blessing. He says, but I will show loving kindness to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. By the way, there you see a parallel. Love me is a synonym of keep my commandments. Heard that somewhere else before? What did Jesus say on the night He was betrayed? He said this, He says, if you, keep, if you love Me, keep My commandments. You see, God, you see, to love God is to keep His commandments. He said, let, let Me tell you this, you keep this commandment, I'll show you mercy for a thousand generations. You hate Me, I'm going to curse you for four generations. You love Me, I'm going to keep covenant with you for thousands. You see, even the comparison of His word of justice and His word of mercy shows that God, throughout Scripture, it affirms right here, God doesn't love wrath, He loves mercy. And so what did the Lord say? 
He says that the way we worship is a reflection of our knowledge. So that's what I want you to take away from this point. The reflection of our worship is based upon our knowledge of God. That's what you take away. If we know His nature, if we know His warnings, and we know His promises, then we are careful to worship Him according to the Word. Now, that leaves one thing. You don't need to write it down. This commandment emphasizes that God, the true God, cannot be worshipped unless He is worshipped rightly in the way that He has appointed. And we would fail to mention the importance that to know Him as He is and to worship Him as the true God can only happen when you come to Him through Jesus Christ. Because God cannot be approached by the unrighteous. And it is the righteousness of Christ that allows us to step into the presence and to worship the Lord. It is why the lost can't understand church. It is why the lost cannot get motivated in worship. It's why the lost just get bored and critical about it. They they can't get it. But when you realize that in Christ, it doesn't matter if it's under a tree, if it's with an organ and a robed choir, or if it's with a whatever where the people of God meet that are the covenant people of God in Christ Jesus, they can magnify God no matter what. And they may not understand everything, but they will leave with something. You can't worship God and you can't fellowship with God and you can't fellowship with His people until you come to Him through His Son. And Jesus is the Godhead bodily. To accept Him as Lord and Savior is never again to come into His presence of the Holy Father without clinging, the Heavenly Father without clinging to Jesus Christ. I'm 50 years old now. I'm on the downhill slide of my career. God willing, I'm going to go till 2064. I'll be 92. But these things are much more important to me than they were when I began my pastorate. You may not believe them, but I definitely want you to know this. I believe these things. Because God believes these things. And I'll labor amongst you so long as I can for you to move from just mere indicative to knowing it, to doing it. We are a prized possession of our God. And we're allowed to worship Him in spirit and truth and we can do that because of Christ. And He has given us His Word how to do it that we don't have to make it up. When the journey started, we made it up. Everything we were doing we thought was right. We were reactionary. We're never going to do again what we had done to us. We almost went off the cliff, but God was faithful because we've always been rooted in the Word. And now we're where we are. And I thank God for it and I thank God for His grace. So just remember... The second commandment is very important to us. And I hope that you will take these very simple cookies and go home and dunk them in the Word and chew on them a little bit and come back and we'll learn about the third soon. There's much more than I shared with you, but we have had enough.